Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to a socially distant, safer at home edition of the Skylight Author Reading Series. If all were well in the world, we'd be peering around the lovely potted trees at Skylight right about now. But instead, the podcast version of today's conversation with Zan Romanoff is an actual podcast. And I am an actual podcaster. My name is Gina Delvac. I'm the creator and producer of Call Your Girlfriend, as well as a fan and friend of Zan Romanoff. Hi, Zan. Hi, Gina. Oh, I'm so happy we're doing this. Me too. I mean, it would be better IRL, but here we go. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, given the circumstances, this is what we're doing. Yes. And I'm very happy because your third novel, Look, just came out. It did. Yes. And like we said, in an ideal world, we would be at Skylight hearing you read from it, talking about it. But we're going to kind of replicate a little bit of that experience today. So Look is set here in Los Angeles with, to my mind, some of the best stuff that you get from a show like Gossip Girl, which is rich kids hooking up, screwing up. And because this is set in today's world, crafting a persona around all of that on their own on social media. Um, that's like the top line I always tell people about Look, but I'm curious, can you give us a quick snapshot of how you talk about the story that you tell in the book? Yeah. Um, so my kind of like elevator pitch for Look is that it's a book about a girl named Lulu who is sort of low key um, famous on an app called Flash, in part because she's just like a cute private school girl but also in part because her boyfriend is the son of a rock star. Uh, so when she accidentally posts a video of herself cheating on that boyfriend with a girl, uh, she both destroys that relationship and also accidentally outs herself as being bisexual. Um, so this sort of picture-perfect life that she has been putting you know, up on Flash and, and sort of gaining notoriety for falls apart on her and the book is about her trying to figure out what parts of that life were good for her and she wants to kind of keep um, or put back together and what parts of it maybe um, actually she wasn't enjoying as much and she can let go of. You're going to read for us. I'm going to read. Are you going to read for us? I'm going to read. <laughs> okay. So where yes. are we in the story and the selection you picked? You know, I decided to just start at the beginning. Keep it simple. Yeah. I like writing an exciting first chapter and, you know, kind of just, it's always fun for me, like when I start the story, figuring out you know, imagining my character kind of going about her day, like nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, something's happening. So we'll start at the beginning. Great. Lulu arranges the image before she turns the camera on herself. Patrick's mother is kind of a monster, but at least she's the kind who makes sure that all of the lighting in her house is flattering, even in rarely used guest bathrooms. You have to give her credit for that, Lulu thinks. The light in here is so even that it almost seems sourceless. 
The shell pink of the wall is suede soft, and it makes Lulu's hard-earned winter tan glow golden in contrast. Everyone who's not at the party will wonder where the hell she is when they see this. So will the people who are here, actually. She didn't tell anyone that she was going upstairs, and most of them don't know the house well enough to recognize this room without context. The image will pop up on their screens at some point tonight, and they won't be able to identify where she was when she took it. They won't ask. It's a thirsty move, and they're all supposed to be better than that. The idea of parties like this one is that you only get invited if you act like the invitation doesn't matter to you. Lulu explained this to her older sister once. Doesn't it gross you out, Naomi asked, treating your life like it's a game? Don't you like to know the rules, Lulu asked her in return. Lulu was 15 then, spending her afternoons riding around in Kingsley Adams' BMW, learning how to smoke weed and how to drive stick, and how to tell if a boy liked you or just liked the way you looked next to him, stoned and pliant, riding shotgun. She was wrong about how much King liked her, as it turned out, but right about the rules in general. There were rewards for knowing what they were and following them carefully. Rewards like when Lulu leaves a party to be alone for a little while, people assume that it's because there's something wrong with the party instead of thinking there's something wrong with her. Lulu is pleased when her image blinks onto the screen. It looks like she imagined it. Her long, dark hair is caught up in a messy topknot, pinned in place by a slash of gold. Bea made her laugh so hard she cried earlier, when the sun was still up and the world still seemed interesting, so her eye makeup is a little smudged, in a way that suggests she's been having too much fun to bother fixing it. She gave Owen his ring back, but kept the chain she wore it on. Its empty curved angles below the frame, where it won't give too much away. Lulu closes her eyes, opens them, and snaps herself in the act of looking up, so that the picture looks like it's being taken by someone standing over her, catching the edge of her attention. Then she takes a movie, her looking at the camera, and then laughing, and then looking away. She thinks maybe she should be embarrassed. It's kind of cheap, just her flirting with herself. But whatever, because it will also work. She posts the files and then settles on the stool at the edge of the bathtub to thumb through the rest of her flash timeline. She can probably kill at least another 15 minutes before anyone thinks to come looking for her, and hopefully that someone will be Owen or Bea. If it's Bea, she can talk her into leaving, going home and going to sleep. If it's Owen, she won't have to work very hard to give everyone, some, everyone something new to wonder about. When the bathroom door opens, though, Lulu doesn't recognize the girl who walks in. Shit, the girl says, even though Lulu is fully clothed and sitting like four feet from the toilet. I'm so sorry. Shit, shit, shit. Sorry. Her hair is curly and copper red, and she's milk pale, freckle sprinkled, very thin. She flushes pink and takes a step backward, knocking into the open door. Ow, she says, and then again, sorry. Lulu can't help but be charmed. It's fine, she says. I mean, I'm not like using it the room. I'm just taking a break. You can... She starts to stand. No, the girl says, no, honestly, I'm, I was just going to do the same thing. She's still flushed, but smiling now, too. Lulu, who endured years of middle school orthodontia, admires the almost aggressive evenness of her teeth. Kind of sucks down there, huh? Lulu says. She sits again. But Patrick's parties are always like this, don't you think? He likes getting shit-faced so much that he forgets there, there are other things we could be doing. Like... Anything else? I'd play cards right now. Boggle. Anything but sitting around doing shots. 
This is my first, the girl says, party. Here, I mean, not like my first party ever. Thank God, Lulu says. I would hate for this one to ruin your opinion of them. The girl laughs. I'm cast, she says, by the way. Lulu, Lulu says. She doesn't offer her hand, and Cass doesn't either. Lulu can't decide if Cass recognizes her or not, and it would be way too narcissistic to ask. It seems like she probably doesn't. She isn't watchful around Lulu, the way girls who know her from the internet sometimes are. They usually don't say anything, but their eyes jitter across her body relentlessly, trying and failing to look away. Cass slumps down to sit with her back against the counter, stretching her legs out on the fluffy rug in front of her. No one cares that much about you, Lulu reminds herself. She's the one who cares way too much about everyone else. Speaking of caring, she can't stop herself from doing her usual assessment. Cass is wearing slightly too much mascara, a thin white t-shirt, and tight black jeans Lulu doesn't recognize the brand of. The soles of her flats are scuffed with patterns of wear. Lulu can't decide whether Cass is trying and kind of failing, or maybe she just doesn't know she should be trying. When Cass pulls an iPhone with a cracked screen and no cover out of her pocket, a third possibility occurs to Lulu. Is it possible that Cass just doesn't care about trying either way? Do you and Patrick go to school together? Lulu asks, trying to triangulate. Yeah, Cass says. She frowns at something on the phone and swipes it away dismissively. Then she looks up at Lulu, her face glowing faintly blue from its light. How do you know our host? Elementary, Lulu says, JTD. So Cass goes to Lowell. She doesn't look like the Lowell girls Lulu's met. There's usually a particular put-together sheen to them, she thinks. Something about Cass strikes her as raw. She's not undone on purpose like Lulu's own carefully careless bun, but there's something about her that's just, I didn't grow up here, Cass says. What it is, Lulu thinks. She asks, when did you move? To LA when I was 12. I transferred to Lowell when I was a freshman. Lulu gets distracted by her phone, which is lighting up with notifications, people liking her post and replying to it and sending her videos of their own. She's getting to the point, follower-wise, where she's going to have to turn off notifications soon. Every time she posts anything, there's a flood of this, just nonsense. Girls she doesn't know, asking her where she got her jewelry and makeup, and boys sending her snaps of themselves shirtless in their bathrooms, trying to look hard-eyed and distant. If Naomi were here, she'd be asking Lulu about this, too, probably. Why do you keep doing it, Lou? Lulu wouldn't have a good answer for her. She puts her phone down. Do you like it, she asks Cass, Los Angeles? Not really. Lulu doesn't catch herself in time to not roll her eyes. Oh, Cass says. She leans forward slightly. So it's like that. It's not like anything, Lulu says. She lolls her head against the wall behind her to make sure they're both clear on how much space there is between them. Whatever, why would I care? Oh. After a beat, Cass leans back too. Lulu should leave it at that. She should go downstairs and be social and stop sitting alone like a weirdo. She should, she should go back and pretend everything is normal so that at some point, everything will be normal again. Instead, she says, I think you have to give it a chance. Oh? I mean, I don't know. It's just such a big city, and it's so weird. I feel like it takes a while to figure out. And people always come in with these ideas about what it is or what it should be. It's so exhausting. Like, just because you've seen it on TV doesn't mean you know anything about it. I guess is all. I guess is all, Cass says, imitating the fall of Lulu's voice at the end of her monologue. 
She nudges the toe of her shoe against Lulu's ankle to let her know she's only teasing. Despite herself, Lulu laughs a little bit. She tries to mask it with a shrug. But no, I get that, Cass continues. That seems fair. I guess I just haven't found the parts of it that I love yet, really. Nothing, Lulu asks. She risks looking up. Cass is leaning forward again, intent, unembarrassed. There's this one spot, Cass says. It's sort of amazing, actually. I could take you if you want. Lulu's phone flashes with a message from Bea. Where the hell are you, girl? Don't make me wander through this whole horrible fake castle on a search. Come back. And then O says he might be leaving soon. Lulu knows exactly how the rest of her night will go if she leaves Cass here and walks back downstairs to the living room. Owen will be drunk, probably a little sloppy. Maybe he'll try to talk to her or kiss her or something, and she knows perfectly well that she should let him. She should. That would be a big step toward normal, bringing Owen back into her life. Lulu knows how to follow the rules, and she knows what happens when she does. She feels the first edge of a hangover coming on, the throb of a headache, the curdle of nausea in her gut. It's silly to think that leaving with Cass will allow her to escape her own body, much less her life. But if she leaves, people really will have to wonder about her. They'll ask questions, and they won't know where to look for answers. Okay, she says. Why not? Let's go. Such a good example in that bit about Lulu rolling her eyes at Cass, which like you and I as two kids who grew up in L.A. and have known each other since we were teens have been doing forever of every new wave of people who move here and like think they know it and have an opinion. It's sort of like, okay, good for you. (laughs) Um, Just the way you write, the way you think about L.A., but the way you write about L.A. is one of my favorite things in your work. Um, The sense of place and look is even more specific than kind of general observations or sense of place. Um, The place that Cass takes Lulu to immediately after the chapter you just read is an abandoned mansion that's kind of under the care of this like grandson or great grandson of a real estate mogul. um, And he's fixing it up and turning it into a hotel, which is just referred to throughout the book as the hotel. <laughs> how did you how did you come up with the idea for the hotel? And did you have anywhere specific in mind when you were picturing it? Yeah, very specific. <laughs> this is, uh, I, I have heard this line that I quote all the time and I have to find out at some point who said it because I quote it all the time. Um, but someone said that writing a book is um, sort of like building a fire. You need to have more than one stick to rub together. And so one of the sticks, you know, of my sort of thinking of this book was what's known as the Bates Motel on Sunset and Bates. That's why it's called the Bates Motel. I used to work at the Jewish Community Center that's across the street from there. um, And I write at a coffee shop just down the block. And so I walk by that hotel all the time. um, And it's an abandoned hotel that an artist several years ago painted white, painted the whole thing white, painted the palm trees around it white, called it art. (laughs) Um, And so... For years now, every time you walk by that hotel, um, there are people outside doing photo shoots. Uh, less so now, but but for a while, it was just like constant. Um, and people would be doing it on the street or they would have like kind of jumped the chain link fence to go inside because there's this big courtyard and take pictures in there. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of me thinking about, I was like, man, like, uh, I want an abandoned hotel <laughs> to play around in. <laughs> like, what a cool, <laughs> interesting place to like go exploring. Um, and then I was like, well, I'm not going to have one, but what if a character in my book had like a, you know, this sort of abandoned place, um, where they could 
you know, figure out where they could hang out <laughs> and kind of well, be that's away from also- the world. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. That's also an imaginative canvas, right? That like this character is kind of doing his version of painting it all into some kind of piece of art. Yeah. I, you know, I'm always um, I'm really fascinated by uh, houses and, and abandoned places, secret places like um, it's it's just like they really always capture my imagination so much. I've been in in isolation, uh, doing a lot of neighborhood walks and finding all kinds of secret houses in the neighborhood that I didn't know about. Um, and I'm every single one of them. I'm like, I want to write a story that takes place here and here and here. <laughs> right. New imaginative landscapes. for yeah. sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the person, Ryan, that Lulu meets when Cass takes her to the hotel and the chapter that just follows. Um, tell us about who he is and kind of like his whole family story. Yeah. So Ryan is the great, great, great. There's two or three greats. I, and I never remember my copy editor will tell you, I never remember how many, um, uh, but the many great grandson of an LA real estate family, his several great grandfather moved to Los Angeles to try and pursue a life in the movie business. And as with so many people that did not work out, um, but his grandmother was an actress and had some money. And so his, I mean, that, that grandfather's wife um, great, was an actress. Great, great yeah. grandmother, whoever she was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> was an actress, had some money, and he invested that and became a real estate mogul. Um, and so they're this very wealthy family um, who have kind of a lot of power in Los Angeles and have had for many generations, um, you know, and consider themselves kind of kings of the city. Right, and then Ryan's brother kind of comes obliquely into the picture as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ryan has an older brother named Roman, um, and Roman uh, used some of his family's money to fund a startup called Flash, uh, which is the social media platform that Lulu is uh, using to try and construct this image of herself and sort of make herself a, a known figure in the world. So it's it's sort of no uh, it's no exaggeration to say that these men have like literally created the whole sort of world that Lulu lives in, and can sort of created the yeah the structures that she lives inside of, and that she's now trying to figure out uh, how she feels about it and whether she wants to continue living in, and how to present herself inside of it, and understanding herself as kind of like the content. Yeah. So the exchange between Lulu and her sister Naomi that I quote at the very beginning of that chapter. Um, where Lulu's, Naomi says, like, you know, doesn't it gross you out treating her life like it's a game? And Lulu says, don't you like to know the rules? That I write chronologically. So, like, when I wrote the first chapter, like, that was in there. And it was just something I wrote, you know, it was just like, I don't know. <laughs> but it, I think is to me, one of the big keys to the book is, like, that she's been playing by these men's rules her whole life. And this book is about her, the very beginning of her kind of being like, realizing that, like, she's just not even aware of it. She's like, but those are the rules. And then it's like, no, 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 these are the rules made by these guys. <laughs> this is the way they want you to look and the way they want you to act. How do you want to look? How do you want to act? Yeah, super well said. And the reason I dug into all that backstory about this Riggs family that you do, you reveal all of it much more elegantly in the book. But <laughs> it's the kind of it's the kind of a moment that um, Lulu really is such a good navigator of this world for us that like each environment that she encounters she kind of unpacks the layers of privilege or social interaction and like later when Owen the boy recently ex-boyfriend that we've just been hearing about in the first chapter meets 
Ryan, who's fixing up the hotel, um, there is this kind of like dick measuring, sizing one another up that's also on a class basis of like, how much money do you have? How much fame do you have? Where does it come from? That's like a very particularly like and and all of these young people really having no participation in it other than like these are their life circumstances they were born into <laughs> right but 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 starting to build a very very adept compass for it yeah 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 exactly um another one of the sticks um that made the kindling that made look was a piece in la weekly um it's called like my night with like la's instagram famous heiress or something and it's you know, this whatever piece about hanging out with a girl who's the granddaughter of so-and-so Sepulveda um, or, you know, great-great-great-granddaughter, whatever. <laughs> um, and it just was so stupid <laughs> and pointless <laughs> and mm-hmm. self-congratulatory about being both impressed by being um, fetishizing and being disgusted by wealth and fame. And right around the same time, there was a much better piece uh, called The Prom Queen of Instagram in New York Magazine about New York private school kids. I, reading these pieces, I just was like, man, it's interesting, of course, to get, you know, outsiders perspective on these kids, you know, these very wealthy, privileged kids. But as someone who grew up in that world, um, I was like, there's a lot of nuance you're missing here <laughs> um, and just a lot of like interior experience, you know, and that's understandable. Like it is sort of a language and a culture all its own and if you don't grow up inside of it like how could you understand all of that but I was like man I'm tired of reading other people writing I think kind of inaccurately and sometimes a little shallowly about those worlds and I want to write about what it was like to grow up into that so yeah and I you know and I'm curious I mean I'm very curious you know because you're I think in certain ways the ideal reader for the book because you also speak the language and and you know come at it with almost you know the most similar um moi un bisexual from Silver Lake who (laughs) went to private school with you and grew up in LA (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think yeah I think that yeah (laughs) but I'm I'm curious to see you know whether that feels meaningful to people or whether they're sort of like who cares what's going on in this book yeah I mean I think um what's exciting to me about reading it is that it's very skewering like it's you have to kind of go along for the ride with Lulu of being in her world and I think for some people that may be inherently off-putting to see what it's like for rich people to be rich peopling around (laughs) on the other hand in explaining how the rules function as Lulu understands them it is sort of the unmasking of the um the like supposed meritocracy in all of this mm-hmm. is very clear, right? It's sort of like you really draw the web of here's not only that we have a society that functions with a great deal of nepotism, but here's like the specific map and chart to how it works. So to my mind, I think that's like one thing that's really, really fascinating about the book that is also like, I don't want it to sound really boring because it's also like a very racy, sexy, like <laughs> teens driving around, like having new experiences, you know, playing around. Like there's a lot of just joy and fun in the book too. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? I know it was brewing for a while and there was a certain election that happened somewhere in the <laughs> middle of you writing this. <laughs> this is, uh, we're at the time now where like all pe- books people were working on around that time are coming out and it's... Every time I go to a book event, like the author's like, well, I was, you know, at this place, the draft and then the bomb dropped. 
Um, and in, you know, four years, I'm sure we'll be hearing the same thing about what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I started writing the book in uh, May of 2016 and was at that point had just left a full time job and was sort of trying to figure out how to be full time freelance. And so was working on the book kind of intermittently uh, thinking, you know, I was like, well, I have no rush, um, whatever. And then, as we say, the 2016 election happened um, and sort of A, the election, but really B, um, there was a moment where I was editing a draft of it and um, was during the Kavanaugh hearings. And uh, I don't know what possessed me to do this. Seems like an obviously insane choice. But at one point I was like trying to edit the book with the Kavanaugh hearings on in the background, like as if that's background listening. Um, But that was really the moment where I felt everything click into place. I was like, man, I have been mad about this since I was 16 years old. Um, I've been mad about the way men treated me at that, you know, at the private school I went to and at the private college I went to. Um, and you know, who I met because they'd gone to other private schools. I was like, I am so furious about the way these power structures work. And the fact that like, it took me so long to figure out how they worked and to give language to that system. And then to my own anger, like, (laughs) um, and, and figure out how to talk about some stuff that I might not have otherwise just writing the book through you know all the mess of the last four years and now I'm working on a book about a natural disaster and a town that ends up being very isolated that I'm gonna write to be editing during isolation so (laughs) so I was fascinated by the way you use the bluebeard myth Mm -hmm. and make it super accessible for readers of all ages because this is a young adult novel. Can you briefly describe the story of Bluebeard and without too, too many spoilers, how it unfolds in your story? Yeah. Um, So the Bluebeard story is um, a story about, there's different versions of it. It's a very old fairy tale um, and it exists in different cultures. But very basically, um, there's a rich guy who lives sort of in a castle on a hill and um, he takes wives and then the wives kind of disappear um and but he's very he's very rich so like what are you gonna do and one of the girls in this sort of town you know below him on the hill she catches his eye and he uh decides he wants to marry her and there's not a whole hell of a lot she can do about that um so she goes up to the house with him and in many versions of the story she actually does kind of start trusting him it's like a beautiful house and he's you know kind to her and he's very sexy in some tellings and he gives her the keys to the house he's like listen you do whatever you want i'm not in charge of you um here's the keys to everything but there's one key on that ring that will open a door and that you could never open just don't go and she's like okay that's fine that's whatever um but she gets more and more curious and eventually he leaves on a business trip Um, and she unlocks the door and finds the bodies of all of his ex-wives hung in this room, uh, and drops the key and gets blood on the key and he gets back and knows what she's done and he tries to kill her. Um, there are different endings to the story. Variously, she escapes in all of them. But, um, it's interesting. So this is is a story I've been thinking about for a long time. Like, when I very first started writing fiction kind of seriously as an adult. Um, it was like six or seven years ago. The Bluebird Myth was one of the first things I started playing around with. And it was interesting because it's not something I had been thinking about before then, but I was like in a writing class and they were like, do a retelling of a fairy tale. And I was like, oh, Bluebeard. <laughs> Again, like, like who knew that was sitting in there? 
But one of the things people, scholars talk about is that, so the theory is, right, that the wives are being punished for their curiosity, that he tells them, don't look in this room, they look in the room, and then they find out his secret and get killed. But the question is, like, what did the first wife find in that room, right, that led her to get murdered? Like, there were no bodies to see. Was he still doing the, like, room thing? One of the things to me was sort of like, you know, we'll spend a lot of time looking for a moral in why a man serially murders women when like maybe all we need to say is he's just serially murdering women <laughs> um, it's not funny <laughs> um, what are you gonna do but laugh uh anyway right. so i should say there are no murders in the story <laughs> that is not i thought about it but that ultimately felt like not sort of the right thing um no but it felt like a useful way to talk about about male violence about reasons men give for the violence they inflict on women about the cyclicality of violence, um, you know, the way that it kind of begets itself. And then also, so there are some versions of the story in which um, the woman who goes into, you know, that, that last wife has sisters and she gets them, they come to visit her, that he's, he's about to kill her and they come knocking on the door and he's like, okay, well, fine, I'll let you visit your sisters and I'll murder you later. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway and they all pray together and and then call for help and sort of how she's saved is is because of her sisters um so it's a, it's a pretty like rich and evocative tale so yeah that was um all kind of spinning around in my mind but again that was something that like i did you know when i started writing the book i could not have explained any of that to you and it's something i learned by putting the bluebeard story in the middle of my story and then looking at it and being like what the hell is this doing here <laughs> until i figured right. it out Right. Well, and it echoes in a few ways, and we won't give all of them away, but one of them is that this great, 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 whoever she is, grandmother of the Riggs family, this house that Ryan's fixing up in the hotel appeared in a film version of Bluebeard, and that's like where the original money comes from, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Right. That it's, you know, money earned, I mean, essentially on the body of a woman, right, of her appearing in this film, and of her sort of, yeah, bringing this story into their orbit. Right. And then the behavior of her then husband is not, um, it's not entirely unlike the Bluebeard <laughs> story in that he takes this money, starts his real estate empire, but then she's not, ex she's expected to not work anymore. And then like, that's all kind of like, I love the kind of spooky ghost story of all the Bluebeard stuff that's like hanging like mist on a you know, like mist rolling in from the ocean around this house, <laughs> around this, this property in the hills. And I, yeah, I love a ghost story. I did find myself at one point sort of having writing this conversation where like there's a an urban legend that Ryan's family is cursed um, because of his great great grandmother. And I was like, I was like, is it a curse? It's not a curse. And I was like, oh, in my first book, there's also like lengthy conversations about whether something's a curse or not. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> ugh, writing a book, you really learn what you're obsessed with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right, teens and curses. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and LA. Yeah, LA real estate, go. kissing. <laughs> yeah, not to stay so heavy, but, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that you and I met as teens at a high school, very much like the schools that we see, the environments we see and look. But there were some things that were different. Um, people had cell phones, but like no one had one out in class. And if they could take a picture, they were the blurry, awful, like maybe not even in color yet. So how different do you think it is for teens, especially young women, in those same environments now? And how did you think about that when you were thinking about Lulu and her world? Yeah, so this was, you know, very different time, technologically speaking. This is like the early 2000s that we were in high school. And it's interesting, though, 
so in some ways it's very different, but in some ways I think it's kind of not. And I think that's why I think that I at 30, you know, three now can be writing about teens and technology is because there is a certain sameness in our experiences um, or something common that I can draw on. When I was in high school, I did not have an Instagram or a Flash or a TikTok, but I did have a live journal. And there were like things on live journal called ratings communities where you could, if you had a webcam, which I did not, and I was like, oh God, my life is ruined. <laughs> um, but you could take pictures of yourself in various outfits and post them to these communities and they would tell you, like give you a rating. And then if you got like a good rating, you were like allowed in the community and you could rate others. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, so so it wasn't as immediate. It certainly wasn't as like surround sound as the way that kids are, you know, broadcasting and shaping and, and you know, recording their lives now. But it, there was some of that sense of like, okay, it matters desperately what I look like. And also that you could shape sort of an image of yourself and, and present it and package it. Like, I definitely remember stumbling upon the live journals of kids I knew from school and being like, you are not cool in real life, but you look really cool on live journals. <laughs> Like, what the hell? <laughs> and just being totally obsessed with the way that people were, like, you know, making that happen for themselves. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, today, obviously, uh, it's, like, that times a million. And in high def and with an ability. Because also, in a certain way, that internet was a lot safer. There weren't search engines in the same way. There wasn't social media. It was just a lot harder, like, to share images. You know, I certainly knew girls who, like, posted their own nudes in high school because they thought it was sexy. And no one else, you know, no one except the people they wanted to pretty much ever saw it. Whereas now that's just not a safe bet in the same way. I mean, not that it was that safe of a bet then. Right. But it does, but it does sort of speak to the fact that even, even then it was clear that like the internet was also real life. That like mm. there is real interaction and meaningful interaction happening and that there will always be ways that kids figure out how to share stuff about themselves and their lives that their parents are probably going to have to work really hard to keep up with or know about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, which is I, I never like know what to make of that because I'm like, I don't know. I was like definitely on the Internet a ton when I was a kid and a teen and like doing stuff that like was not probably technically good for me. But like I turned out basically fine <laughs> but you just never know you know i happen to find ratings communities and like fan fiction but what if someone finds all right reddit that's true and at the same time though like there is a certain amount that i think we have to leave room for like pe young people to start to explore and like figure out their find their communities and find their interests and just yeah hope to god that it's not fascism um, <laughs> yes yeah and that yeah and that's all that i mean to say is just that like you know I'm always like, absolutely, the internet is dark and full of terrors. Um, and, you know, when you think about what someone potentially could find on there, it can be pretty horrifying. But I just am always a little also side IE when people are like, well, the internet is definitely bad. And like only bad things are happening to like teens and teen girls these days. I'm like, I don't, I don't you know, I think things are hard all over, pony boy. So to that end, how did you think about writing Lulu's like mid-level social media stardom and was it easy or hard to get into her head um well so I went back and forth a lot on what level of sort of social media start or not back and forth but it, it took some calibrating to get the number right because I didn't want her to be you know an influencer I didn't because also in parks I was like I don't want her parents to be involved in like this part of her life at all and at a certain point it's like not hideable you know if you've like millions of followers or whatever like, I just wanted to kind of be in a place where it's like, 
you're not anything more than a high school student, but you are like the most famous high school student um, at your school. At yeah. Your, yeah. And, 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 and in the L.A. private school network, shall we say, that just seemed to me to be kind of an interesting thing to explore. Also, because I had written my second book is about a girl who's hanging out with a boy band. And so I'd written kind of about like that kind of interaction with fame. And I was like, OK, well, we've got to take this down a notch. Right. There's no paparazzi following Lulu. Yeah, exa- exactly. And she's not doing like sponsored content deals. Like this isn't like a, you know, an adult pursuit for her. Maybe it could be. But for right now, it's like a high school, you know, hobby. I did not find it that hard to get into her head. Let's put it that way. Um, I do think that part of the thing of this book for me that I realized really late in the game was that it was about, you know, written in part from my experience of having been a professional author for the last four years five years, something like that, um, then a full-time professional writer, you know, of cultivating an online persona um, and trying to, like, make people like me online, <laughs> you know. So, again, it's not that, like, you know, Lulu has way more followers on Flash than I have on all my social media platforms combined. <laughs> but for like, now. For, for <laughs> now. For now, it's true. Uh, so, yes, but... But it was like if I, I could sort of take, you know, that high school experience of like ratings communities and insecurity and trying to like make myself look cool online and the adult experience of trying to create this persona, you like kind of need people to like, you know, and just and mix it all together. And that kind of created, I think, the conditions of empathy where that part of her life made sense to me and felt like, in fact, it was kind of a relief to talk about it, you know. It's fun. I don't know. It's writing books is such a weird experience um, because there's certain things that you like understand are meant to be in books. And so, you know, you write about them without thinking about it. But like there's a lot of experiences that you just don't have that language for. And like so like in my second book, I write a scene where a girl gets her period and it took some thinking to like figure out like where does a period fit into this story? Because there's no, no traditional space for it. Right. In sort of like mm. the novel. And in the same way, there's not a ton of space of the novel as we understand it for, like, the sort of just, like, calculating that constant social media updating requires. Um, and so in order to write that in, I had to write a whole book about it, you know, there was, right. but it was kind of a relief to be like, okay, in this book, someone is going to think about whether and what they're posting on their Instagram just as often as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also resonates more deeply with, like, uh newer not new but like more recent trends in social media of let's say like the last five years of like a kim contouring tutorial or like things where there is sort of an increased focus on showing some of the construction of beauty or the construction of the image as compared to just the sense of effortlessness that's often conveyed when it's like men writing about women as like beautiful distant objects as if yeah. there's no effort to that. <laughs> or or no internal experience of it. Yeah, like, for sure. As if you're not always thinking, like, my boobs look good. Do my boobs look good? I don't know. Should I, like, you know, do this? Should I even be thinking about whether my boobs look good? Can I yeah. just have an idea or a creative practice or an experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that it's just, like, it's, it is always interesting, I will say, to read people, like, talking about my books and talking about how like the characters think obsessively about various things and I'm like to me it doesn't seem that obsessive but I'm like oh it's because my internal monologue is like (laughs) intense and obsessive all the time oof like I know you're talking about the character but you nailed me (laughs) (laughs) what are you reading right now I've been recommending look to everyone as like a great take yourself out of 
the horrible conditions and like intense speaking of obsessive thought patterns that I think a lot of people are falling into right now. I think it's a delightful, fun, still very real, but it's also like nice to remember a time of like being a teen frolicking out in the world. (laughs) Um, So I'm curious what is keeping you grounded or sane or excited or interested? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. First of all, Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, have been reading Maureen Johnson's Truly Devious series. Um, They are... uh, set at a rich kid boarding school um and they're like a you know about a teen detective who's um investigating a vintage murder mystery um it's i mean it's like the true it's actually not like look at all but in those like thematic ways it kind of is um mm-hmm. and that's just that's been very like transporting and engaging and like you know it's like the middle of a vermont winter in the books that i'm like yes snow me in with the boy i have a crush on <laughs> like please um so that's what I've been reading and I have, I just have, part of the reason I pause is because I have like stacks and stacks of books that I'm looking forward to. My concentration has not been as strong as it sometimes is. Um, so those have been books that I can just absolutely like lose myself in. What are you writing now or next? You alluded yeah. a little bit to disaster isolation. Yeah. It's about two girls who are best best friends and just sort of as tight as can be and then one of them falls in love for the first time and starts dating this guy and it puts a lot of pressure on their friendship in various ways and sort of just as this is happening there's a mudslide on the highway into their town which is the only way in and out they live in kind of an isolated town in northern california and so they and their community are sort of trapped all together and cannot avoid each other (laughs) in this moment of heightened heightened emotions it's really hard to talk about the book because it's about two very distinct things that like make sense when you read it but when you're trying to describe it it's like wait what because it's sort of it's these two girls are very much in this sort of like archetype of pairs of best friends where one of them is like wild and sexy and the other one is shy and bookish and so it's about like female archetypes and and female friendships and all that stuff um but it's also about climate change But so, like, again, like, you know, it's sort of it's feeling eerily and upsettingly similar to the sort of experience of writing Look and then having 2016 happen. It's like it was about being young and experiencing a disaster and trying to figure out what the world's going to look like and how you're going to survive it. I, <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot of different I have a very different perspective on experiencing disaster now than I did when I first started writing it. So I'm curious to go back and open the draft. And uh, yeah. Good luck with that. Thank you so much. I (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for look. And thanks for joining us on the Skylight Books. We're not IRL, but we're still making a podcast today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and asking me questions. You're the best. It's so much fun. It's the best. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.